This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Spencer Sherman. Spencer is a graduate of the Wharton School, was named one of the top wealth advisors in the U.S., and is a co-founder of Abacus Wealth Partners. Spencer's expertise in finance has landed him appearances on CNN, CNBC, and in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. He's the author of the book, The Cure for Money Madness, and is currently working with Sounds True on the Money and Spirit Workshop, an online workshop designed for integrating our spiritual and financial lives. It's a six-part online course that begins on March 21st. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Spencer and I spoke about taking back from the experts our own financial wisdom, the importance of understanding childhood messages about money, whether or not it's really best to rent or buy our home. Spencer also showed us the practice that he calls the money breath and how we can use this practice on the spot in financial situations in our lives. Here's my conversation with Spencer Sherman. Spencer, I'm someone who's extremely interested in spiritual unfolding, spiritual awakening, and also I love money. I love having money and having plenty of it. Do you think there's any contradiction or any need for there to be any kind of split between loving money and loving the spiritual process of unfolding? Any problem there? Hmm. So it's it's a funny question that I often hear, and I've certainly wrestled it with my with that issue myself. You know, I see money as just a form of energy. Um, it's it's money is this powerful tool that can be used for incredibly good things or or not so good things in the world. Uh, so to say that money and spirituality can't be in the same room together is is sort of insane. Because money itself is, is at, at worst in some ways, it's neutral. It only becomes good or negative based on what, how we influence that money. So it's all about our, our behaviors with this substance, this energy of money, that can tr- transform it into the most amazing vehicle for spiritual and environmental and planetary transformation or, or degradation. You can go either direction. So you're saying that money is itself an inherently neutral form. Yeah, yeah, I mean I think that money money is something that we've we've been conditioned to believe that money is bad or that we can't handle money. Uh and it's 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 taboo. Uh it's something we need experts for. And what I've been a voice for is that no, money is something we all can master this field and that money instead of being an an obstruction to our spiritual growth, can actually be an enhancement, can actually be the vehicle that takes us there. 
and one of the reasons is because we we think about money so often. It comes up in 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 every interaction we have with other people with at work, going to the bank, the the ATM machine, buying things online. And we can start noticing, just as in a meditation practice, one notices the breath and what the breath is doing. You can start noticing, well, how do you respond to all these money interactions? What's happening with the breath? What's happening inside the body? What's happening with the emotions? You just using money as a teacher uh, instead of as some kind of enemy. Okay, so let's say I want money to be my teacher. And one of the things that I notice is that it's a topic that I don't feel very masterful about. Mm. I mean, you said, you know, we can all master money. And I'm imagining the person listening who says, you know, okay, I've got a long way to go between where I am and mastery. So, so what do you suggest? I start noticing how uncomfortable I feel. How do I become a master? Mm-hmm. Well, that, the first step is, is to become aware of your tendencies, the predispositions that you inherited uh, during childhood, sort of your money karma. To notice that, become aware of that. How did your parents and ancestors handle money? And what, what did you learn about money? And what are the messages that you received that aren't working for you in your life, that, the unproductive messages that you've, you received? Uh, and how are, they, how are they working or not working for you in your adult life? So that's the first step. And then it's to continue, as you said, Tammy, to, to feel into and notice the breath, notice the body each time you're in a money situation. So you're, you're about to ask your boss for a raise to notice what's happening to the breath and see if you can start to you know, expand that awareness of what's happening inside uh, as a way of coming into a presence with with what's really true instead of reacting to the past, which is, oh, I'm not allowed to ask people for more money. A message that a lot of us received is maybe by just being with the fear that's underneath that, we can get in touch with the truth, which is that asking for more money is actually a win-win for me and for my boss. So those are some of the, the first steps. And then when you said about mastering money, the reason I – this field, money, is unlike any other field. Other fields take lots of years of training uh, and practice to actually master. And money is the opposite. It's really all about the, this, this conditioning that we've had that leads us astray with money or has us ignoring money. And when we start to engage with our money behaviors, our, our, the feelings inside the body, the, the breath, all of a sudden we, we, you know, things start to shift and we recognize that we don't need to get an MBA. Like I have an MBA from Wharton Business School, but one doesn't need that to master this field because we see the most educated people in this field making the same silly mistakes that all of us make with money. So it's a, it's a, it's a unique field, cause unlike any other, where, where one can master this field in, in a relatively short amount of time. I'll just add on to that, Tammy, particularly with investing, I would say. When it comes to investing money, this is a world where the experts are telling us that we, we need to time the markets and forecast what's going to happen and listen to professionals and just the opposite is what's true. The evidence all shows us that nobody has a reliable crystal ball and that the best way 
to invest money is really in a, in a sort of a Buddhist approach. It's a witness approach where you witness everything that's happening, but you don't react to what's happening in the world. And that leads one to a very diversified portfolio. And that approach of building that very diversified portfolio is actually the, the approach that's made the most money. But that's not the approach that's followed by most people and certainly not the approach followed by most professionals. Now, Spencer, this is very curious. Here you are, you're a professional money manager, and yet you're saying that expertise isn't really needed, that all of us can be experts when it comes to managing money. But isn't that ironic? Here you are, you're a professional money manager. Yes, yes. it's very humbling to be in a field where my wife, who knows nothing about money really, she was educated in that generation where her brother got a money education, but she didn't. And she can do as well with investing as I can, even though I have an MBA and I have over 20 years of experience investing. Well, maybe I should let your wife manage my money instead of having you manage my money. I mean, this is a little that, ironic. Well, as long, you know, the truth is, Tammy, that as soon as you learn a few simple rules around managing money, you can do it yourself and beat about 95% of the experts. You, you won't beat all of the experts every year because some of the experts get lucky with their very concentrated crystal ball-like strategies, but you'll beat the vast majority of people. Okay, but, I mean, Spencer, doesn't this make you want to quit your job and just teach people instead how to manage their own money? Well, that's and that's what I'm doing. I mean, I feel like my role is, to, is really as a financial healer to help people heal the tendencies they have, the fear that they have around money. Uh, we all have. You know, we were all brought up in this culture of you've got, you know, you, should, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about money, you shouldn't want money, but you should want money. I mean, it's a very confusing if, if world. I mean, it, it's more taboo in many ways than talking about sex or any other thing. Uh, and, and yet it's a vital part of our health. I mean, there's people, we have more stress around money than I think anything else. There's the AP American Psychological Association did a study that more people are getting divorced over money issues than anything else. And, you know, somehow we've allowed ourselves to go astray with money. You know, we know when we overeat or we know when a friend overeats and we know what that does to our body. But somehow it's sort of okay to overspend. You know, we, we, just, we just do it. It's automatic. It's part of our culture to overspend or to be impulsive with how we invest money. Um, and, by the way, overeating, overspending, the, another, another analogy can be made to undereating, underspending. I mean, all of, all of them are not really necessarily serving us when we act in those kinds of ways. When we either hoard money or we overspend it, there's certainly more overspenders in this culture where we are sort of running our lives on empty. Uh, no oil in the in the engine, no gas in the tank. How could we expect that to lead to a healthy money life, or, or money life, or a healthy life in general? Mm -hmm. Now, you, you use this phrase that you think of yourself as a financial healer, and that, that's very curious to me. And I'm curious, what do you think financial health looks like in a person? What would a financially healthy person look like? Yes, it's. It's having a sense of equanimity with this whole financial world, with your money life, regardless of how much or how little money you have. It's, it's, it's being able, it's coming to peace with money and having the ability to communicate about it freely. 
so that when a friend says to you, let's go to a five-star restaurant for lunch, you say, you know what, I'm really focusing on my on my spending right now. Can we do a potluck lunch, lunch instead? Versus lying to the friend and saying, oh, I'm busy. Or what probably a lot of us will do is, sure, I'll go to the, four, the five-star restaurant with you. Let me just get my credit card, which is already over the limit, and bring it along. Mm-hmm. So you're saying being at peace with whatever amount of money you have. Yes. Now, I, I can see being at peace if I have what I think is plenty of money or enough money or enough money that I'm not too stressed out about how much money I have. But how can I be at peace if I have debt and I, and I don't feel like I have very much money? Well, first is to recognize that your wealth has, is something to do with how much money you have. But your wealth it includes so much more. I mean, this whole notion that self-worth equals net worth is is so much a part of our culture and has gotten people in so much trouble. I mean, people have committed suicide. Um, you know, in this last financial crisis, there was a German businessman who committed suicide because his he went to, he went from having ten billion dollars to five billion dollars or something like that. The first step in in realizing that how much money in the bank has very little to do with our self-worth is to see our self-worth as much more than just uh, what an accountant might call our net worth, which an accountant might say our net worth is what's in the bank and our brokerage accounts minus our debts. That's your net worth. And unfortunately, with the culture, we've equated the two. And yet our health is left out of the picture. Uh, and our health is certainly worth a lot. Uh, I mean, who would you prefer to be? Somebody who's got lots of money uh, in mediocre health or somebody who's uh, very healthy with no money? When I ask that question, hardly anyone ever says they'd prefer to be the person with lots of money in mediocre health. So health has something to do with it. And certainly our earning ability has something to do with our, our wealth, but yet that's not accounted for in our net worth statement. So what would I say to the person who has very little money, how do you come to peace with it, is sort of recognizing everything else that you have in your life, recognizing the health that you have in your life, the friendships that you have in your life, your community, uh, your untapped creative skills, and then start to become aware of some of the messages you received early on that might be preventing you from allowing money to come into your life such as, you know, a message that a friend of mine who's the son of a minister, he got the message that you should never have to charge for your services. So he had no money, uh, ended up going through a foreclosure because of those messages he received early on. And as he became aware of those messages, became aware of the, the tendencies inside himself, the, the, the feelings around those messages and stayed with them instead of impulsively acting from them, uh, he started to change his money life. And he's now in a much better financial situation than he was five years ago. It, it seems, Spencer, that you put a lot of emphasis on people's early experiences with money, family, inherited beliefs. 
Is that true that that's an area that you put a lot of emphasis I, I think, on? I think it's. I think yes. I think with money, we're basically like children. Um, a lot of us, because how can you explain? I mean, I just went to see a symphony uh, yesterday, and you know, everyone up there playing violin has been doing it for decades, and they're all they were all stunning. They all played so well, but you don't see this in the money field. You don't see people who have been doing finance their whole lives, who handle money well in their own lives. You just don't. The, the smartest money people I know are doing the most foolish things. So it must be that there's something else going on. There's, there's a, the, all these emotional, spiritual forces around money, which started early on, in my belief, that are keeping us, even the most savvy among us, from being at peace with money, from being successful in, in my definition of, of success with money. So what excites me, I mean, this is, tell me, what really excites me about this field is that mastery is accessible to everyone. This is one field where you do not need to go to, you know, do four hours of yoga every day for the next 30 years to be above average at yoga or to, you know, to get into some uh, contorted yoga posture. You know, you, you, here you can get to the top of the class very easily. I mean, you just come into balance with your finances. You just start to access the wisdom that we all have inside of us around money, start clearing out these cobwebs of these emotional forces from the past, and all of a sudden you're going to be in the top 5% of all human beings in terms of how you relate to money. You'll be one of the most successful people around money. But, Spencer, it's it's interesting because you make it sound easy and simple and you know very accessible, and yet I think most people's experience with money is that yeah. it's very fraught, it's very difficult, and even if they could tell you about their early childhood memories around money, that's not the same as feeling free of those patterns, that those patterns seem yeah. very deeply embedded in their being. Yes. It doesn't seem that simple to sort of shake off whatever these childhood uh, messages are. Yes. I, I would say it's... it's um, I mean, I've seen it for all different people. For some people, I've seen shifts very rapidly. For others, it, it might take years to have shifts. But what I have seen, Tammy, is I've seen people take on an investment strategy that came from a wisdom place instead of an impulsive place, and start and they started making lots more money than they ever had made in their lives. I've seen people very quickly develop some ways some ways of of working with their spending and coming into balance with their spending. Now, they still these people still have have a lot of work to do on the emotional forces from childhood, but they've been able to achieve a certain mastery very quickly in the outer realm of money. So, is it is it simple? I mean, in a sense, it's. I guess it depends on how, you, how you, you hold those terms. It's simple, but not necessarily easy to become free, as you say, Tammy, of the sort of shackles of childhood around money or the the, the conditioning that we got around money early on. I agree with you that that takes time to completely undo, but you can change the way, shift the way you act around money. Um, I think in a very short period of time, and I've seen that. What would you say were the messages you received in your family? And then I also know that you're a father. I'm curious what messages you think your children are receiving about money. 
So I received, I mean, I, I asked my father when I was eight years old, I said, Dad, how much money do you make? And he gave me a look that terrified me, and I felt I was filled with shame for even having asked the question. I mean, I, I thought I asked such an innocent question because uh, my friends were talking about how much money their dads had made that day. So I asked him the same simple question, and he never answered the question. He just gave me this terrifying look. And the message I received from that incident was that money must be the most important thing in the world, and that's why he's not answering and it must be that you can never have enough of this stuff called money. Because if you can have enough of it, somehow he would have given said to me, well, I make this much and you need to make this much. So that led me on a course of being very aggressive with acquiring money and somehow thinking that if I acquired lots of money, it would set me free. Um, I can just tell you the short, short bottom line to that story is, Tammy, is it didn't work very well. It was a very painful path to pursue, to think that money, just just acquiring more and more money would somehow uh, solve my, my issues and, and produce freedom for me in my life. Were you successful in making a lot of money? Yeah, I have been successful in making a lot of money. And I'd say that I've become successful because I feel like there's a certain balance in my life now. It's not like I have uh, unbelievable amounts of money or the amounts of money that I dreamed or thought I'd need to make when I was much younger. Um, but I have a sense of balance, and I don't feel the need to have a lot more money in my life. There's a sense that, yes, it'd be wonderful from a from a philanthropic perspective, but I, I have a sense that it's, it's not going to add anything to my personal life uh, necessarily to have more money in my life. If that happens, so be it. Uh, but it's not like I need it for me to feel a sense of uh, uh, equanimity with my finances. And just before we go on to the messages that yeah. your children might be receiving from you, what was the painful part of your life story and the breakthrough that occurred around money? Well, I, I there, there are a couple things. I mean, one very pivotal experience was there was a fire in the office building I was in in my mid-20s, and the largest fire in Philadelphia's history. And I was so attached at the time to my material possessions, to money in a, sen- in a sense, that I somehow convinced the fire marshal to let me back into the building before it was safe for anyone to be inside that building. I mean, there was chances of le- electrocution. I was walking, you know, knee-deep in water, uh, get, you know, darkened hallways, getting, arriving at my, uh, my things, which were completely destroyed anyway by the time I got to them. Uh, so here I risked my life to gather up these material worthless possessions. Uh, that, that was a day of awakening. Mm-hmm. And did something shift in you after that event? It did. It did. I mean, I realized it, after that event, there was a an opening to what is going on here. I mean, it it actually took me on a, a deep path of uh, meditation. I started doing many silent retreats. Um, that's when my yoga practice started, and I was on a mission to sort of understand the forces that drove me to go back into that building to suggest that my computer and my files uh, were more important and and the shoes that I had in my office were were more important than my life. Mm -hmm. 
so that day I feel like was one of those, you know, I think everyone has a series of best and worst days in their life. That was one of my best and worst days because it really got me to open up to understand what is going on here um, and set me on a whole new course to see that money's important. Yes, it's vital. Yes. And yes, it's fine to have it. Um, but it's got to be part of a much larger context called my life. Mm-hmm. And now let's just project ahead and it's, let's say, yeah. you know, 30 years from now and your children are being interviewed and they're yeah. talking about the environment they grew up in and the beliefs they inherited about money. Well, what do you think they might say? Well, a few things. Uh, that even though my dad was a financial advisor and and really good with money, I always had to remind him to pay me my allowance. Um, that might be one thing. Uh, another thing would be that they kept, somehow I got this sense that we weren't that, we, we, we didn't have that much money or we weren't wealthy, and yet we had the biggest house of all of my friends. So I think they might have some messages around, get some messages around that. Um, uh, and I think that they'll also say that, that they really enjoyed saving up for things together. We're We're saving as a family for a trip to Europe in a few years, and every week, all four of us put money in this in this beautiful wooden box that my wife had gotten for my birthday several years ago, and we just keep putting cash into this box. And it's one of the things that I tell clients and others to do in, in my workshops is when you want to save up for something, put save, save up money in a box for it. Or if you, you want to control your spending on clothing, you know, designate a shoebox for that and put money in each month. So I think that they'll they'll have that sense. They'll also have the sense that Dad gave a really good interest rate on the money we saved. Uh, I give them a fifty percent return on any money they save each year. Wow! Now that's pretty healthy interest that's a rate. Variance, serious incentive. Yeah, yeah. Compared to what they're getting at the bank. Um, so um, you know, I think um, you know my my son and daughter are completely different. My son doesn't like to spend money and is very frugal. My daughter loves to spend money. And she's also younger. She's seven. So she's also just coming to see the benefits of starting to delay gratification and save some money. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned, Spencer, when you were going back into that office building on that day to get your possessions, that you had a kind of reckoning with the person you'd become, and that it was from that day forward that you became interested in meditation. And, And I'm curious, you teach something obviously, that comes from your meditation practice called the money breath. What's the money breath? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's wow, if I had had that money breath, Tammy, back in, uh, in my mid-20s, I would not have gone back into that building to retrieve those worthless possessions in that building that was still on fire. The money breath is designed to give us Spaciousness. I mean, it's exactly what we don't have around money. There's no oxygen around money. Did you ever notice that? The impulsiveness, the thought to buy the cashmere sweater over the wool sweater happens in a nanosecond. You know, it's justified by, oh, I'll get more miles on my credit card. Or, oh, well, I didn't buy something else last month, so I'll buy it this month the thought to sell our 401k investments when the market goes down, that all happens when oxygen is absent from our bodies. We have no time to reflect and access 
the wisdom, which I declare that all of us have wisdom around money. You know, this is the other thing is like we, the financial professionals have tried to make it seem like, like you need us. You don't need financial professionals. You need yourself. You need yourself, your, your own wisdom that's beneath all the conditioning that we've received around money. So one of the tools to access that is this money breath where it's a simple inhale and then an exhale that's twice as long. And the inhale is through the nose, the exhale is through the mouth. And the breath focuses the mind. It also creates this pause, and that pause is revolutionary. I mean, it's the difference between somebody doing something completely foolish and and not doing that thing. You know, investing in Florida real estate in 2007 and not investing in Florida real estate. Uh, so it's it you know and that and that oxygen that you know fills our brain and enables us to think better. Because what I've noticed is really smart people are not able to think when when all of a sudden when the subject comes to money. Now, are, are you suggesting that I do the money breath anytime I have to make a financial decision or anytime I feel uncomfortable about money? Or how, how do I put this into practice? Uh-huh. It's the, I designed the money breath. It's, it's, it's a, to the count of three on the inhale and the count of six on the exhale with a one-count pause at the top of the inhale. So it's a 10-count breath or perhaps a 10-second exercise to do one money breath, and I usually suggest doing three money breaths. Um, And then at the end of the exhale, I say, may my money wisdom increase. May my money wisdom increase. That's what we're heading for here. We're not heading for may my money, may my bank account increase. No. May my money wisdom increase. And maybe for you it's going to be something else. Maybe may peace around money increase for me. Um, whatever fits for you. But I, I've been using my, my money wisdom increase now for years. And I, I use this money breath whenever I'm in um, a spending, investing, communicating situation around money. If I'm about to talk to my wife about money or I'm back to talk to employees about money uh, or I'm about to buy something or sell something, I'll do the money breath. Uh, you, you can do it in your car. I also do it as part of my morning practice. Uh, I do the money breath because every day I'm working with people's money and I want to make sure that I'm coming from that wisdom place as much as possible and not from the conditioned place. So how might the money breath affect, for example, your investment strategy or how you approach investments? Mm. Well, the as you do that money breath and you feel you feel that sense of peace at the end of the breath and that calm from that place there's perhaps a recognition that nobody has a reliable crystal ball nobody knows the future that you don't know the future and nobody does that money breath puts us back into our beginner's mind that mind that just doesn't know and when it comes to money nobody knows what's going to happen with investing and from that place, you realize that investing in every category of investment out there, being completely diversified, is the strategy that makes the most sense. It's the only strategy that makes sense in a world where nobody knows what's going to happen. And it's also going to lead one to take that, that much more patient path, because being diversified is not as is exciting to the ego 
Um, it's not impulsive. It's it's not quick. And the ego wants a quick turnaround. The idea of investing in the a startup solar energy company that might become a billion-dollar company overnight is very exciting. But the money breath gets us back to that place of don't know, that place of beginner's mind where we, we, we know that, that, yes, these things have an entertainment value, but it's unlikely that our bet on that solar energy company or on that buying that lottery ticket is actually going to pay off over time. And there's been many, many studies on this, Tammy. So, so by coming into sort of right action with money, we choose this diversified portfolio. You know, I've called my diversified portfolio the rainbow portfolio because it's an assortment of 14 different colors in a pie chart. And anyone can access that rainbow portfolio. There's nothing proprietary about it. Anyone can do it, and you certainly don't need to have an MBA in finance to do it. What I notice in this conversation, Spencer, is a theme where you keep wanting to empower the everyday person to use their common sense about money, this idea that just everyday people, that we have what it takes to manage our money wisely – And as I hear that emphasis, that sort of empowerment emphasis in the way that you speak, what I'm reflecting on is why people in general have so disempowered themselves around money. Why we all think, or not all of us, but why so many of us think that we're somehow retarded or crippled or incapable or somehow we don't have what it takes. Like we might be able to be successful in other areas of our life, but this area, it's just, you know, I don't quite have it. Why do you think we have this collective idea that we're not up to it when it comes to handling money masterfully? Yeah. I mean, let me say one or two things. You, You use the term common sense, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It really is about common sense. You know, this, just as one example, is buying or renting a house. Now, you, now, why is it that the collective consciousness is all about buying homes? I mean, I think it, it's cultural. It's our conditioning, our collective conditioning that leads us to believe that we need to buy a house or, or that we can't handle our finances. You know, you ask the question, how come we have this sense that we're retarded around money or we can't do it? I think there's heavy cultural conditioning. I mean, there's it goes back into literature, and it was in. I mean, Dickens wrote about it. We've inherited these ideas from generation to generation. I mean, there's every family has the most incredible stories around money. You ask people about their family money histories, and you'll hear horror stories of fortunes lost because of the most silly decisions made or impulsive decisions or aggressive kinds of decisions made uh, to do certain things or fearful decisions made. I mean, we're just coming from so much fear around money. So getting back to that house example of, you know, buying a house versus renting a house. Okay, so let's look at those. You know, we, we, we all want a warm, beautiful home to live in. And so who cares if you rent it or if you buy it? But yet there's such a huge conditioning that we have to own this home. Now, when you, when you actually look at the numbers, one finds in most situations that renting is actually much better than owning. Uh, and yet that's completely ignored. Somehow we've been led to believe that owning is what you should do. Uh, and it's just not true for most people who don't have 
commitment to live in a particular home, particular neighborhood for a long period of time. Uh, buying a house versus renting a house is a great illustration of how our conditioning has led us astray. Because when we look at the numbers, it's a very complex comparison. And often renting turns out to be better than buying. I mean, renting a house is very different from renting anything else. Like when you rent a car, it's clear that if you rent a car on a long-term basis, you end up spending a lot more money than if you own a car. But with homes, it just isn't true. When you look at all the costs of ownership, of the, all the repairs and the utilities and the taxes, you quickly discover that renting is actually a, a pretty good option, but it hasn't gotten the recognition it deserves, that somehow it's, it's seen as downtrodden to rent. But this is starting to shift. I mean, with this housing collapse, I think people are starting to see that houses don't automatically increase every year. And if you make the assumption that houses only go up by 2 or 3% a year, and if one makes the assumption that houses are only going to increase by 2 or 3% a year instead of 5 or 6 or 7 or 8% a year, which is what we were experiencing uh, in the 10 years uh, up till 2007, then you st- you see that renting can actually be, be- better for many people, um, especially when you're not committed to a certain house, a certain neighborhood, town for a period of seven years or more, or you don't have reserves of cash available to, to fund a, a repair. So this is a case, Tammy, where if we can look at it with new eyes, with fresh eyes, with that beginner's mind, we might make a different decision. But my friends who buy houses often just rush into buying a house. They never consider the rental option. And what I'm suggesting is, I'm not saying don't buy a house. I'm saying look at a rental as, along with the houses that you're looking to purchase and see if it still makes sense. How, how would you suggest somebody go about making the decision whether to rent or buy a home? Well, I'd suggest looking at all the costs involved uh, the, and then looking at what's realistic as to how long you're going to be in that house and what's realistic in terms of your cash reserves to handle the repairs that are inevitably going to come up with that home. And then to really try to find a house as nice that you can rent. Uh, And people have this sense renting is throwing money down the drain, so they'll see a rental for $3,000 or $2,000 a month, and they'll think that number is insane to pay that much money for rent. Somehow it feels okay to pay that much money in in a mortgage payment. But when you actually do the math, and there are lots of calculators online to do this, and my my book talks about this whole rent versus buy issue, um, you start to see that it's not so simple and you might be better off renting. One other thing about owning versus buying, the thing that I think gets people to buy homes often is that the mortgage payment represents a forced savings plan. So if you're not going to have own a house and have a, that mortgaged or forced savings plan, then you need to you know, either set up some kind of forced savings plan for yourself or hire a financial advisor to help you set up a forced savings plan while you're renting. Because I think otherwise the, the, buying the house is likely to come out better if you're not able to save the difference when you rent. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
I'm curious, this is such an interesting take from a financial advisor about, you know, the advantages of renting. I've never heard this before. Are there other issues like this that you think that we sort of have the collective wool pulled over our eyes? Well, certainly I mentioned the area of investing. We have the wool pulled over our, our eyes. I mean, all these entertainment shows on television trying to predict what's going to have happen with the markets, it's all nonsense. It doesn't help anyone. You know, Fidelity had Peter Lynch, and then they spent a fortune hiring his successors, and Peter Lynch even trained his successors. And Peter Lynch was someone who was able to beat the markets, and yet his successors couldn't beat the markets. So we have to recognize that that it's just not possible, you know, through reading the newspapers or newsletters or getting an inside scoop on things that we're going to actually beat the average bear. Um, and I think I think there's great wisdom in that, in in recognizing that. I mean, it's 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 a step towards humility, also, when I recognize that myself. That even though I want to get my face on the cover of Time magazine, this guy has been able to you know to top Peter Lynch's record, and he's helping all his clients achieve these amazing financial returns. I recognize that I, that nobody can do that on an ongoing basis. So I think that's that's an area, and certainly other areas where we have the wool pulled over our eyes, Tammy, or just the the whole area of spending. That if we spend more, if we buy more things, somehow we'll bring more into our lives. That our happiness will will increase if we acquire more. Certainly, uh, an area, and that if we make more money, we'll be better off. Uh, and I was just talking to someone who had a, got a huge raise. And it's backfired on them because with that huge raise, they've increased their lifestyle. And now they're dependent on this higher level of income uh, for the rest of their lives, they see it. Unless they can now step backwards, which is much harder to step backwards. So now they've put themselves in a very stressful financial situation. So I'm not saying that it's it's not wonderful to make more money, but the but the idea that it's always a good thing when you when you get a raise is not necessarily true. Because mm-hmm. we tend to spend exactly what we earn. So so if you if you're making fifty thousand, you spend it all. When you make a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, you spend it all. But now you've gotten uh, a, sort of addicted and attached to that higher lifestyle. And now you've got to figure out how to how do I fund that lifestyle for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very sobering point. <laughs> now, Spencer, just uh, one final question. You know, you use this phrase that you see yourself operating in the world as a, a money healer, and we've been talking about money healing and the individual, and yet yeah. you've pointed out how a lot of the messages that we receive are from the culture as a whole. And I think we all know that our culture as a whole seems to be upside down in so many ways when it comes to money. What would be your healing message for the culture as a whole? What would be the top, let's say, three cultural healings, if you could wave your healing hands that would help us relate to money as a whole, as a collective? I would say sufficiency is the first. To recognize that what you have is enough. is to go for enoughness instead of more. It's not part of Madison Avenue's advertising plan to go for sufficiency, but it's what will actually produce happiness. That instead of 
how do I make more money or get a bigger house or or another house or a nicer car or a newer iPhone is how can I find contentment with what I have? Make that your challenge in life. How can the amount of money that I have in the bank today be enough? How can my income, current income, be sufficient? To come from that place of sufficiency. How can my time be enough? Instead of, you know, the money and time, we often treat them the same. There's a scarcity of both. And the scarcity feelings are at all levels. People think that multimillionaires don't have that sense of scarcity. And I'll tell you, they do. I work with multimillionaires, people who have $100 million. They do have that same, those same fears, that same sense of scarcity. So instead of saying, you know, with time or money, like I don't have enough time, I'm running out of time, I need more time, what if we came from a place of I have enough time, I have enough money, and see what happens from that perspective. Now, see, you know, that's, I think, where people end up getting really creative when they think that way. You know, I, I tell the story of a friend of mine who couldn't make her finances work, and but she kept coming from a place of really wanting to do her creative work, wanting to be an artist. And suddenly the idea came to her that she needed to drastically reduce her living expenses, and somebody gave her the idea about India. And she's been living in India for the last five years, leading a very rich life there, spending very little money, making her life work with what she has. So I think, you know, we can actually collaborate with our friends around our financial issues. We don't have to see money as such this this dark secret that we have to keep hidden in a closet somewhere. We can have dinner parties and say to our friends, here, are the, you know, how do we find a way to find abundance or sufficiency with what we already have. Or sometimes I'll make it more challenging for people or more sobering, Tammy, as you use that word. I'll say, you know, find it on half or two-thirds of what you now have. And you'd be surprised how people get so energized and so they come up with such incredible ideas when they have to think like that. Wow, if I, if I had less money, less half as much income, I'd have to get rid of a car, I'd have to do this, I'd have to do this. Well, when I look at the whole picture, my life would somehow be simpler and better. I mean, I'm not saying that's always true, but and, and that so the person even should go down that path of getting rid of their car. But just the 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 acknowledgement that they're not trapped by money, that even if my income went down, I'd still have a rich life. That is freedom. The second thing I want to leave people with is that our self worth is so much larger than our financial net worth. And if we can all recognize that we have so much going for us already, independent of our finances, we'll be much more relaxed around money, and ironically, we'll end up earning more money, making more money. Because from that relaxed place, we're able to access our wisdom inside instead of that being impulsive and responding from that conditioning, which hasn't really worked for us. And the third healing gift is to recognize that the most accomplished, most expert financial people in the world are making the same foolish errors that all of us are making around money. And then when we recognize this, there's all of a sudden the separation between us and them evaporates 
the sense that we can't do it and only they can do it evaporates. And we start to take on feeling empowered around our money instead of feeling like, like a victim or, you know, like I can't do it because I didn't get educated, I didn't get an MBA or be, because my parents didn't educate me. It doesn't matter. We're really accessing our common sense around money. And that common sense is blocked by those messages we received early on. So as we can wade through that mess of money conditioning, we can start to clearly see our, common, our wisdom and common sense and move from there. And all of us have this ability to master this topic. We've been speaking with Spencer Sherman, a very empowering message. Spencer, along with co-author Brent Kessel, has created a home study course for Sounds True called the Money and Spirit Workshop. The Money and Spirit Workshop will also be offered as a six-part online series beginning March 21st. And attendees of the online series will have a chance to interact directly with Spencer and Brent and they'll be able to answer questions you might have about money and spirit. Spencer, thank you so much. Thanks for bringing such uh, just real down-to-earth clarity to the whole question of money and equanimity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. It's been wonderful to speak about this topic and give people uh, a sense of empowerment uh, that that we all can do this. Very good. That's what we need. Yeah. Break yeah. open the taboos. Thank you so much. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.